You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Why do I think KBOO is important to our community? Well, I believe it is important to our community because of the same reason that I am passionate about KBOO. It provides a platform for people to express themselves. And although this is becoming the norm, especially for the past 10 years and the present time, it is the norm for people to be able to express themselves to a variety of video platforms, either on phones, tablets, and on the Internet. The community radio was the medium that I believe pioneered the whole concept of having regular citizens express their ideas and their philosophies, their opinions, and their thoughts on, on things that are uh, of importance. So that's why I think KBU remains a very, uh, at least potentially, relevant part of our community. It provides that basic platform to express oneself. Hello and welcome to Pathways, where you were invited to join me for a visit with leaders in personal development and cultural evolution. This is your host, Paul O'Brien, and I'm very happy to be with you today and uh, to be talking about a really amazing book. We're going to be sharing some breakthrough research on how trees and plant groups and our guest today examines the attributes we share with trees and plants and how the behaviors of altruism, cooperation, and community are genetically coded in our beings. She explores the healing powers offered by the plant kingdom and how to see and think with holistic ecocentric awareness. Our guest today is Judith Polich, author of the new book, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing. Judith is a former lawyer, environmentalist, and wetlands advocate. She holds a Master's of Science degree in Environmental Studies and Environmental Education from the University of Wisconsin. The author of a climate change column for the Albuquerque Journal entitled Cutting Your Carbon Footprint and a book, Return of the Children of Light. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hello, Judith, and welcome to The Pathway Show. Well, thank you for having me, Paul. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Well, in the last couple of decades, research conducted in the soil underneath trees and other plants has completely revolutionized how we think about trees. So tell us, uh, how has our understanding of trees changed? Well, like most people, I used to think about trees based on what I saw above the ground. I knew they had roots, but I didn't know much about what happened below the soil. And now um, researchers who started with uh, a plant ecologist named Suzanne Simone, began using more advanced technology to actually track what goes on underground in the soil. And they found a lot of really fascinating things. One is the degree to which trees and other plants in their ecological system communicate, share resources, and um, interact with other members of that whole plant community, particularly the fungi kingdom. Uh, the there's a fascinating and really exciting interaction between fungi, trees, and plants. They 
the fungi get their food from the trees. In exchange, they bring the trees minerals, water, uh, even medications at times, it seems, to help them treat certain conditions. It's just fascinating. And of course, you know, they they don't have a brain and a spinal cord like we do. They don't have vocal cords like we do, but they have a way of communicating. And some of that is um, through electronic sin, uh, stimuli, other is through chemicals. Uh, it's just, it's really amazing. It's a whole interactive community. And this community demonstrates cooperation. They seem to demonstrate something that seems like kindness in terms of taking care of other trees, including trees that aren't even in their species. And um, they certainly seem to have some semblance of intelligence or something like intelligence. I don't really know what to call it, uh, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I got very excited about this research some years back. And the more I got into it, the more I understood that there were some really new, interesting narratives that were emerging, causing us to rethink a lot of our older assumptions. And of course, those are assumptions we really need to rethink because those are the assumptions that got us into the climate crisis. You know, it's fascinating to think about the relationship between fungi and trees, not to mention the relationship between fungi and humans. And there was that documentary that came out a, a while back, Fantastic Fungi, which yeah. uh, was, ama- was amazing. Um, you know, I'm wondering, does this mean that trees are high? Are they like taking psychedelics? Is that what's going on? <laughs> I don't think there's any evidence of that from any of the research that have, that's been done. Uh, um, but, you know, there's a, there are so many different types of fungi, and certain fungi have an association, a long-term association with specific types of trees because they have this interactive relationship. The trees are providing them with the sugar they need to survive. They're giving their part of the exchange, is giving the trees the minerals that they can't, reach and that they need um, water at times and other things that can assist in the growth of the trees. I haven't read anything about psychedelics, so. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's amazing the way that you describe how trees take care of each other. They care for their offspring and their elderly and their infirm. I mean, you tell the story of one stump that's like of a 500-year-old tree that's still alive because of the uh, connection that it has with uh, its relatives under the ground. Uh, and, and these are behaviors that can only be described as co- cooperative and al- altruistic and holistic. Um, you know, is, is this like par for the course when it comes to trees? Well, from the research that I report in the book and research that other people have since come up with, uh, it's the tree and plant community have these incredible underground interactions. We use words like cooperation, kindness. Those are human words. They're coded in our ways of understanding. But something is happening that is very interactive and uh, and seemingly holistic in how the plant communities, the tree communities exist uh, and coexist within the fungal communities. And so it caused me to wonder what happened to us. I mean, <laughs> and um, 
how did we evolve differently or did we evolve? And, and certainly we evolved differently, but um, we did take a different path because um, animals uh, rely on plants and other animals for food. Trees photosynthesize, they create their own food. So it's an entirely different dynamic. Um, and I was kind of brought up to think of that cooperation wasn't essentially a core characteristic of humans. But as I studied this more, I realized that it absolutely is. And in many ways, plants and trees and humans share many behaviors, including cooperation and kindness and things like that. Uh, you talk, uh, chapter one of your book is entitled The Heart Brain of the Forest. But what do you mean by heart brain? What I mean by that is, of course, the tree doesn't have a heart in the sense that we do. It doesn't have a brain, but it communicates and it is interactive uh, in a way that um, makes us ponder, makes us ponder how they develop these mechanisms and this capacity to work as a whole, as an interactive system, as a as a whole ecological unit. And um, they may in fact have some type of brain type functions in in their roots uh, and in their, in their, based upon studies that have been done on trees and how they perceive things, they have what you might think of more as a dispersed intelligence um, where they're taking in information from all parts of, from their leaves, from their branches, from their roots, from all, all parts of their total system. So it's different than um, certainly the way we might normally think of a heart-brain function, but um, perhaps it's a more holistic approach to um, how they are integrated within the larger community of the forest. And what are you hoping that we can learn from trees and how we can change our behaviors as a result? Well, I think that there is a tendency to think of trees as nothing but a commodity that's there for our use and our benefit and for us to utilize in whatever way makes sense to us from our human perspective. Uh, so I think that this research that has been ongoing for quite a long while um, opens up a lot of more doorways of understanding uh, and I think they can teach us a lot about cooperation. I think they can teach us about a more holistic way of thinking and perceiving uh, and um, help us to kind of re-examine some of the falsehoods in our own thinking. Because uh, a tree is far more than a commodity. Um, and it may, and I'm not, there are certainly strong arguments to be made that plants and trees have some form of sentience. What does that mean? Is that, and how do we define that? We've been very slow to giving, to understanding that animals, including those we eat, <laughs> uh, are sentient. And, does, and in some degrees that has changed our behavior toward those other species. Right. And what are we, what are some of the, you, you say that there are some green stories emerging from our 
major religions now. And what is a green story? And can you give us uh, an example or two? Sure. In terms of the new narratives that are starting to emerge in our global culture, um, I was raised as a Catholic, and uh, many of us in this country were raised as Christians. And there's a Christian creation story of that in some way implies that we're the superior beings and we have dominion over all of the rest of nature. Um, the current Pope, Pope Francis, has been a really strong advocate of addressing climate change and has been retelling some of those older stories within the Christian religion, which does, and in his very astute assessment, domination was never what was implied. Our job was to take care of the garden that we were given to care for. And that is a green story that is now coming out of many, many other religions as well. Um, certainly the Hindu religion is very much and always has been based on the idea that everything is interconnected, that we are all one. Um, Islam has oh, many, many sectors of what they call green green Muslims that are working very hard on climate change based on how their, inter their interpretation of the teachings of Muhammad, which is that we're here, our job is to care for the earth. So that's the new story. And it's found in Buddhism. It's found in, it was always found in the ancient religions and the indigenous religions. But now the more mainstream religions um, are showing strong evidence of greening their stories. And uh, that is setting an example for all of us to work to address the harm that um, that we've jointly created in in our planet to bring the planet back into balance as we bring and bring ourselves back into balance with the planet and with all of life. Are you optimistic about our capacity to bring it back to find a balance and harmony with nature? Like everybody, I get discouraged, but I have to be optimistic because I love this planet. I love everything. I I love the natural parts of it. I love the culture that is evolving. I love I love what's happening, even though it's a very difficult and dark time in many ways. And I don't mean I love it all. I mean we're in a rapidly changing time that I think in the long run is going to bring much more integration and a much more holistic view and understanding of our role in relationship to all of nature. So it's hard work to be optimistic, but uh, I work on it. And um, I think that we have to hold on, even, hope, even though hope at times seems fragile and everything that is going on seems so overwhelming, we just do one thing at a time. And if we all just do take those small steps, they become bigger steps and we can affect a larger change. Now you mentioned Pope Francis and his, what do you call it, treatise or encyclopedia or whatever he- It's a uh, Yes. 
It's an it's, it's a teaching for all of humanity. It just came out with a new one uh, last October that was really focused on COP28 and getting people really engaged uh, in climate. He's taken some uh, very broad steps, but um, he also is working all over the world and integrating with all other religions. Uh, so I think this is a really big, it's a big movement. Oh, it was fantastic what you reported in your book. I really enjoyed uh, reading that. It inspired me to want to read his entire letter, um, which I shall, but I haven't yet. And um, it's, inc- it, it's, it's, it's very heartening that uh, something like that is coming down from a major religion uh, that has been part of the problem for a long time, uh, in my view. Now, you talk in general, and in the book, you the book is really kind of a personal growth book in a way, telling people how to commun- how to get benefits from communing with nature. And you tell the story of how you had gone down all these spiritual paths um, with wild adventures, with shamans and, and Inca masters and gurus, uh, but that you finally came to understand that what you truly sought was to communicate directly with nature. Can you share uh, that story with us? Well, I still have a strong spiritual path and work with different teachers, but I think that part of my integration, I was trying to integrate these different parts of my life, the spiritual part and the everyday world part. And um, in some ways, nature is a wonderful way to do that because it's very direct and we can go and we can spend time in a natural environment and just being in a calm natural beautiful healing space in nature can help us drop our stress level certainly can help us to come more to our own center and so it has as many people have realized, a strong healing function. Okay. And so there's some way that communing in nature helps you uh, drop your separate sense of self and become more communal, more holistic, right? Right. And I think there's quite a bit of uh, research on that. And um, what happens, we have these different parts of our brain, right? There's the part that is engaged now while we're talking and the thinking, it's the thinking and planning part of our brain. But there's another part of our brain called the default mold, which is much more holistic. And when that other part of our brain is kind of tuned out or closed off, uh, then this uh, more holistic part of our brain can be more fully utilized. And I think that's what happens when people spend a lot of deep time in nature. Uh, They let go of that more dominant part of their brain. They can be in this more balanced, holistic part of their brain, and they can just be. (laughs) Okay. So can you kind of describe to us what that looks like? When you go out into nature, what do you do or not do? Well, I think we maybe we all might maybe have different places that are special to us in nature. So go to your special place, and um, if it's a place where you can just sit quietly, just sit quietly. And um, you know, if you're a tree hugger, hug a tree. Uh, whatever works for you. And uh, 
but allow yourself time. Obviously, don't take, don't be tuning into your phone. Turn your phone off, um, and just sit and be. And um, you don't have to be a meditator. You can just lean against a tree and just relax and just deepen into what's around you. And after a while, you'll your ordinary world will kind of fall away. Uh, and you'll be more attuned to the world that you're in. Maybe you'll be hearing some beautiful birds singing. Uh, maybe there's a wind in the breeze, and you're just kind of being with whatever is. But what you're not doing is thinking and analyzing during that time. And I think that's right. the key. So that has a lot in common with meditation or taking a psychedelic drug. Um it is a form of meditation. You know, you go out into nature and you let go of thinking and you are, do you feel like you're imbibing some of the vibrations of the trees and the, and the plants that, uh, that you're, uh, that you're communing with? You know, the same thing happens when people garden and, you know, they're, they're out there, in a different zone, basically, and their hands are in the soil and they're paying attention to the plants around them. And it's a deepening and it's also a connection, uh, a renewing our connection with the world that sustains us. And I think that's an important part of our own healing. Now, we have this concept, the tree of life, and you talk about it in your book, and it's a widespread myth or archetype that is found in many world religions. Uh, what is it? What does it mean? Well, it can mean different things in different religions, but um, the tree of life is at a core of many religions and symbolic systems. And um, whether it's it is interpreted to be our connection with the heavens, or uh, in in another in a other more mundane way, uh, trees have always been sacred and um, people have always gathered, ancient people gathered around trees. And in some ways they took their counsel with trees and um, it was an integrative, I think an integrative part of many early mythologies. And why do you say that the Darwinian principle of survival of the fittest does not seem to apply to trees. Well, I'm not sure it applies to any of us, but for sure, let's look <laughs> at trees because trees, um, if we take the research that has been evolving in the last 20 years or so and look at that, we're going to see that they're far more cooperative than they are competitive. Uh, there used to be the notion that trees are always competing for sunlight and whatnot. But in fact, if you look at the broader picture, what's going on there, they're exchanging resources beneath the ground with all the trees within their broader community. That's a cooperative, not a competitive function. And um, we've tended to take that Darwinian principle as um as a norm, and I'm not sure if it is. I mean, really, I think if we look at what's going on now in terms of survival of the fittest, I'd say it's survival of the most adaptable. That's the race we're in now, not the most competitive. Yeah, in fact, one could argue that the competitiveness is what's killing us. Exactly. Um, you, you, 
you referred to a term uh, biophilia, and can you right. please uh, define that? And and is that and do you feel that's innate in in us? Well, there's several books that have been written on biophilia, and it's a concept that we have this natural tendency to want to connect with all of life. To um, and it's a beautiful concept, and uh, there are many many people who have looked at biophilia as a concept believe that it may be something that may be genetically coded in us the desire to connect with the broader whole of life um and when i first uh came across the term i felt a strong resonance with it because it's uh, we all have this yearning beyond ourselves, not just with our families and our human communities, but um, the deeper, broader, interactive community that we share the planet with. It's a beautiful term. I don't know if it's truly genetically encoded. There are many people who believe that it is. What do you think? I mean, do you think that trees prove that cooperation and altruism and kindness are genetically coded? For humans, I don't know. I mean, for trees, I think there's something going on within the tree community that seems to be an innate part of their systems. They're they're much more of a community than they are individuals. And uh, we're used to thinking of ourselves more as individuals than a community, but maybe that's wrong too. Mm -hmm. Now you say in addition to our five senses, trees have about 15 other senses. I wonder, what do you think of devices on the market that claim to be able to listen to music that plants emit? Is there anything to that? Should I buy one of these? I don't know. I mean, there are, and I'm not that familiar with that, but those devices, but I know that trees do emit clicks at time. Sometimes it's a, uh, a warning to other trees. Um, people are, the you know the bioacoustics part of tree research is still pretty small um but trees do like listening to music and there is some evidence that trees and plants generally thrive with certain types of music i mean they like softer classical music a whole lot more than they like hard rock for example and will thrive better <laughs> listening to something that's a little more sustaining to them uh, but okay. but you know it's 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 a, it's something that would have to be researched a lot more. Now, but if you get uh, the device, let me know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, now, you mentioned that Buddhist scholar Kenneth Kraft uses the term eco karma to describe the impact of human choices and their effects. So, I, what is eco karma? This has to do with our relationship with the environment. Well, I think that it's the it's the idea within Buddhism that has been evolving for quite some time through the work of Joanna Macy and many other people that um, we're here for more than just our own personal enlightenment. That we have to be engaged and active within a broader community and certainly within the whole arena of climate change uh, as an engaged. It's part of this whole engaged Buddhism. Um, the schools of engaged Buddhism and that 
is part of the greening that is happening in all our major religions. There, what, there are half a billion Buddhists on the planet, and um, more and more of them are tuning into some of these other aspects of Buddhism. And I love that term. Yeah, and you use a term in the book, or refer to a term, ecosattvas. You know, the bodhisattvas. Yeah, I love it. We know what a bodhisattva is. It's somebody who is dedicating their life and their future lives um, to coming a help to helping others. And so right. taking that term and putting it into the context of climate change and the times we live in, being an ecosattva is is definitely a powerful path. And that I think there are even training workshops on that concept um, in some um, Buddhist centers. Well, I think your book is doing a lot, a lot of good towards that end. And I wish we had more time because there's so much more we could explore, but we are completely out of time. And I want to well, make sure to tell our... <laughs> it goes, it's, time flies when you're having fun. And I want to make sure to tell our listeners about your website, which is www.cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. Cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. All one word. I really encourage our listeners to go check it out. And thank you so much. Uh, Judith, for being on our show, for doing what you're doing, for being an ecosatpa, right. modeling <laughs> that for the rest of us. Thank you so those, much for having me. You're so welcome. And for those who may have tuned in late, this is your host, Paul O'Brien, author of Intuitive Intelligence, a book that shares the theme of Pathways, which is personal and cultural evolution. Now, don't worry, you can play and or share this interview whenever you want via that. Uh, as a free podcast, and I'll tell you how in a minute. Today we've been visiting with Judith Polich, author of... You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. This month's Board of Directors meeting will be held on Monday, December 18th at 6 p.m. The meeting will be held online through a public video conference a public link, and phone number. To attend the meeting will be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting 